Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking at today's lineup, and boy, am I impressed. I've got David Wheaton coming on in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on uh, Exodus, which I can't wait. And then uh, David Mathis is going to join me as a first-time guest from Desiring God. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? Hmm. Well, those are practices that we find in Scripture that promote the kind of growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're habits of devotion and habits of experiential Christianity that have been practiced by God's people since biblical times. And then I'm going to have a full hour with Dr. Doug Grudhouse, our topic with Doug. And if you've ever heard Doug, you know how amazing he is. We're going to talk about defending the biblical view of Jesus. That's all what's planned for today. So I'm glad you're with me, and I hope you can stay the whole two hours. I'm always glad to have David Wheaton on the show. He has uh, been a friend forever and a regular guest, and we've been uh, going through the book of Exodus, and he is uh, joining me right now. David, welcome. Hello, Bill. Good to be with you today. Yeah, I heard you almost forgot uh, today's interview. I did. I didn't have it on my calendar for some reason. I have it every other Wednesday, but for some reason it wasn't there today, and uh, fortunately, my beloved mother called me and said, <laughs> are you going to be able to build it? And I said, uh-oh. Thank so you, anyway, Wheaton. we had some extra content from last time, so we, we shouldn't be lacking. Thank you, Mrs. Wheaton, for keeping your son in line. Appreciate that. That's right. Yeah. It's been that way my whole life. <laughs> okay, before we get to Exodus, I'm just so fascinated because I think you're one of my very few friends I have that is a former professional athlete. But as we're looking at the Olympics, we're seeing some very interesting dynamics go on with some athletes and some of the mental issues they're having. And I would love to have your perspective on that. Yeah, well, the whole issue with Simone Biles, who is maybe arguably one of the preeminent athletes in all sports in the entire world. You know, she's the best gymnast of all time. I mean, if, if you compare her record to someone like, oh, I don't even know, like Tiger Woods or some of the best tennis players, Roger Federer, she, she's right up there with them from mm -hmm. the standpoint of how dominant she has been in her sport and won Olympic gold medals, medals everywhere. And so when she came to the Olympics, and the U.S. team was so favored to win and so forth. And all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, she does not do well in her first event. I think it was on the vault or the balance beam. I can't remember which one. And all of a sudden, next thing we know, we hear in the media that she's pulling out of the team competition. I mean, the best gymnast in the world on the best team all of a sudden decides, well, you know, I'm here at the Olympics and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not really ready to go. And I, I think the natural reaction across the world was, whoa, did, did she just basically just, you know, throw in the towel and right. give up and so forth? I think that that's the natural reaction to have. But then as she began to talk about what was going on and you, you realize, you know, how difficult the mental aspect is of sports, especially that particular sport where, you know, it's, it's not only very difficult to perform gymnastics, but it's also dangerous. You're flying through the air and twisting yeah. and so forth. And it, I, you know, I still, you didn't know what to make of it. But I think in the end, as you kind of take a step back and look at this, you just realize that, you know, she got into a situation where sometimes when you're at the highest level of a sport, and I 
distinctly remember this sometimes playing tennis when you're in a really big match and a big stage, it's almost like time slows down. It's like you're, you're watching yourself uh, every little aspect of what's going on. Like you're watching a movie of yourself and that's not a good place to be because you want your sport to be very spontaneous. You almost want it to be like, you don't have to do a whole lot of thinking you've trained and you just, you just do basically. And, and your, your subconscious is, I mean, think about when you're doing, you know, flips and vaults off uh, in gymnastics on a balance beam, you, you can't be thinking to put left foot here, switch body there, turn arm there. You can't do that. And so obviously something with Simone just went on in her mind, like she's been saying that she just, she, she called it the, the twisties mm-hmm. where you, where you start flying through the air and you kind of lose, you lose perspective on where you are and it becomes to be very dangerous. So I think as you pull back from it, you realize that she's human. Uh, th- this is at the very highest aspect of her sport. She's the best athlete of all time in her sport. And, you know, she just struggled for whatever reason. You don't really know why was it the pressure or whatever, I don't think it was giving up though. She wasn't giving up on her teammates. It's just a, a mental situation that sometimes comes in that you've hit a tennis serve the same way all the time. And all of a sudden one day you go on the court and you're double faulting all over the place. Why? And I think that's kind of what she was experiencing at the Olympics. It was great to see her come back though. And, and enter the individual competition on the balance me and watch that last night. She did get a bronze medal there. So um, very interesting story though, out of the Olympics, uh, Bill, and I'm glad you brought it up. But David, I'm so fascinated with, uh, the discipline that athletes go through at, especially at the elite level that athletes like Simone and you have gone through, because I, I know there's probably rituals that you have in order to get yourself in the proper place to play the match. And if you're in Tokyo or in some foreign country and you didn't uh, sleep in a good bed or you didn't get the kind of breakfast you felt like you needed, I mean, can't that mess with your head a lot? Well, very much because at the highest level of any sport or really anything you do in life, there's, there's very little margin between first and second place between these athletes. You know, they're just fractions of a percentage point. And so you realize that and you realize that if there's any mistake at all, uh, it's going to cost you, going to cost you the meat, the, the game, whatever it is. And so she's trained so hard for this to come to the Olympics for so many years and, and it's gotta be perfect. You know, that's what gymnastics is, is, is a sport of trying to be as perfect as you can be. And there, there's a physical side to the training that goes into it. You need to repeat the, the, the things you're going to be doing physically in gymnastics or in tennis or in any other sport over and over to get that muscle memory. But then there's also equal, equally important, if not maybe more than important than the physical is the, is the mental being able to have a clear mind, a mind that can focus on the moment, a mind that is neither overthinking, you know, like where mm-hmm. I just talked about the last answer where you're, you're thinking too much, where you, your, your mind just can't keep up with all the things that are happening for you to be able to do physically to perform your sport, but also a mind that's not underthinking either. That's, that's realizing you're in a, you're in a situation and what you need to do at a given time. So it's just an incredible balance. Uh, and, uh, for someone like Simone Biles, you can just realize you know, the eyes of the world she feels on her. She has so much expectations for her to win all the time. Very, very difficult position to be in. She's done it. She's handled it so well throughout her career. And, uh, it was very interesting what happened at the Olympics where it just came to a point where it's like, she just mentally just didn't feel like she could perform the, the routines that she had done for years and years. Yeah. David, at that level though, of competition, let's just take, let's take, let's go back to your days at Stanford. So you're, you're playing and your team is in like going to be in the biggest match. And, and a player says, I don't feel it today. What's the Christian mindset? What does David 
think, feel, and treat this teammate like. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of nuance there because for someone like Simone Biles, I don't I don't think it was a matter of giving up. Like giving up is like when you're in a tennis match. I use that analogy because you were a tennis player as well, where you know you're you're down a set and you're losing in the second set, and you just even though you're capable of going on, you just sort of like you know you kind of throw in the towel for the day and and don't give your best effort. I do not think that was the case with Simone Biles right. at all. I think it was just a, a mental, like you can have a physical impediment. She had some sort of mental impediment, you know, spinning in the air. Uh, maybe it's a vestibular thing in your ear. Who knows right. what it was that just led to all of a sudden she had no confidence in being able to to spin and rotate in the air and land correctly. And that's, of course, what gym, gymnastics is all about. You know, whether there was a fear issue or not, I, I don't know. There certainly was a fear issue, I'm sure, of hurting yourself. But just fear of competition, I don't think so with her. She's mm -hmm. been in so many big meets all over the whole, the world and done so well that I think it was really, truly just a, a mental just breach or something she had just about the spinning and jumping that caused her to say, you know what, this is I'm, I'm going to be hurting my team, actually, if I go out there and really perform as badly as I feel, this is not only going to be not helpful to them, but I'm going to hurt our chances to do well. Mm -hmm. David, just from your professional experience, what was your best comeback match ever? I think it was when I played Andre Agassi at Wimbledon in uh, 1991. It was in the quarterfinals. And I was actually at that particular time, Agassi had won Wimbledon the next year. So he wasn't much of a known quantity on grass, but mm -hmm. I knew he was a good player on grass, but he wasn't known to be a grass court player. And I was. And so I kind of handled them the first set and a half and was doing very well. But all of a sudden things just turned around 180 degrees and he began just to take me apart. He won the second set, the third set, and he was up a break of serve and almost winning the match in the fourth set. I mean, I'm basically so far out of it, about to go down two breaks of serve in the fourth set and somehow won the game, got into the latter part of the fourth set, won the set and won, then won the fifth. So that was probably the most memorable comeback where mm -hmm. I was basically out of the match and somehow was able to come back and win. <laughs> I love hearing stories like that. I appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, one of my producers here at the station, Ryan, is probably thrilled right now. All right, let's <laughs> let's take a very short break. When we come back, let's uh, dig back into uh, Exodus. We're going to continue to talk about uh, the plagues, uh, chapters 1 to 4, and we're going to uh, learn a little bit more about uh, frogs when we come back. You're not going to want to miss this. of the Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org, learn more about David. But we continue our study in the book of Exodus, and I, we're going to talk about the ten plagues, which is going to be interesting, David. Maybe we just briefly touch on the last point we made last time we were together. 
Yeah, this was kind of the lead up to the 10 plagues uh, that God sends on the Egyptians and Pharaoh in breaking them down, basically, to to let my people go. That's a that's a phrase that's used over and over again. You know, thus saith the Lord. That's that's why that's how Moses and Aaron would approach Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. By the way, whenever that said, we should do what thus says the Lord. But Pharaoh never does, of course, until he's forced at the very end. And then there a plague would come. And then at the end of it, you know, or the or the command would be, let my people go to worship me. Then at the end, you always see Pharaoh hardening his heart. So there's this repeating pattern over and over again. But before the first plague actually happens, you know, God has brought Moses and Aaron, who are brothers, back uh, together. Moses is back in Egypt now. God has chosen him, commissioned him to lead the Jewish people who are oppressed out of Egypt back to the promised land in modern-day Israel. And um, before they, the first plague comes, you know, Moses and Aaron say, thus says the Lord, let my people go, with no, with no plagues or anything involved. With. They're just going to ask the first time around. And uh, Pharaoh's response to this in Exodus 5 is, who, who is this God? I mean, well, g- give me a break. Why, why should I obey him? Uh, who, well, you know, I will not let Israel go. He basically just refuses straight, out, straight off the bat, typical of the way the, the world responds to God. It's just pride, mocking, ignoring, hey, I'm going to go my own way. And not only that, but Pharaoh concludes that the people must be lazy. And and so he increases their labor, the Jewish people's labor. He puts foremen over them, the foremen are beaten and so forth. And so the, the people of, of Israel, well, wait a second here, we were enslaved before this, but we weren't being beaten and we weren't having to gather our own straw. But ever since Moses and Aaron came back, now our lives have gotten even worse. So this whole thing turns into a nightmare for the people of Israel, even before the plague start, Moses gets blamed, things are going sideways, life is worse for them, and they haven't gone anywhere. So Moses is probably wondering, well, wait now, I came all the way back here, I was promised success by the Lord, and things just go sideways. And as we talked about last time, God uses these kinds of circumstances in our lives. So like when, when he says something's going to happen, a promise, he doesn't necessarily promise that we're going to go from A to B in a straight, easy line. And so God is doing using these difficult circumstances in several different individuals' life, and in the nation of Egypt's life as well, too. So for Moses, this is a time of sanctification. God is using this to, to build Moses' trust in God, to making him more holy, to be ready to lead this these millions of people out of Egypt. He's using it in the life of the, the, the Jewish people, the Israel people, Israel people, the Jewish people, teaching them obedience and trust, that they're going to need to trust this God and be obedient to him. With Pharaoh, it's about God's judgment on on him for being basically an idol worshiper and a God rejecter. And for the Egyptians, God is showing his—actually his mercy in some ways and his salvation, that this is the God you should be worshiping, not all the false gods that you're making in your land. So God is working in all these different people and countries' life at this time— and that's why that things just starts to go plainly from point A to point B, as sometimes we think God is going to do when he makes a promise to us. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. We're talking about uh, Exodus, and we're going to be in the study for uh, quite a while. But we're already up to, uh, I think, chapters, uh, let's see, is it seven? Seven, yeah. That's where we in, uh, encounter our first plague, where water is turned to blood. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I know. So you, you, you have to keep this in mind as we go forward here through these 10 plagues, that each plague that happens, that God causes on the, the nation of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh, uh, is going to be is going to demean or diminish or destroy 
something that the Egyptians and Pharaoh hold dear. So like the first plague is the the water of Egypt, and this is all the water of Egypt, not just the water in the Nile, which is their their lifeblood, so to speak, no pun intended. Uh, the Nile River was the, the main source of life for Egypt, for their agriculture, for water. Uh, it, it had great religious significance to the people of Egypt. It was, it was their country's greatest resource. So to have their country's greatest resource, the, the, the Nile River, what they relied on, having it turned into blood, basically unuseful and disgusting and gross and yeah. smelled terrible and everything else. I mean, th this was a direct assault between, you know, between the eyes uh, to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt on something they held as as sacred. And so it says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let my people go. And that's the problem with all our hearts, by the way. We have stubborn hearts. We want to do what we want to do. That's that's the core of all of our sin right there. And said, verse 15, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, to the Nile River, basically. Station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile, and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go. There's that phrase again, that they may serve me. But behold, you have not listened until now. And now the plagues are going to start, basically, the Lord's going to say. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's what God does. He wants to know that, look, I am the only true God. And I'm going to prove it to you by striking the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand. It will be turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile will die. The Nile will become foul. The Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. And this is exactly what happened. Blood was everywhere. I mean, you can just, I mean, it's just horrible to even think about. Blood was everywhere in water pots, not even in the Nile, but everywhere. Fish died. Everything had a stench to it. And this was a literal occurrence that happened, a literal miracle. But the interesting thing is, as earlier— when Aaron came up to Pharaoh and threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent. Well, Pharaoh had these magicians who were able to do the same thing. They were able to, when the, when Pharaoh's magicians showed that they could turn some water, I guess, in some pots to blood, they probably did it satanically or just maybe it was magically done, you know, through a magic illusion or something like this. But the interesting thing about that is instead of the magicians having the power to reverse the plague, they actually only made it worse, which which is kind of ironic in itself. <laughs> it, it would have been interesting or nice if they had actually reversed it. That would have really showed their power. But the fact that they could only replicate it just showed who the real power was, and that power was God. But at the end, again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He took no concern for what happened because he saw his own magicians do the same thing. Yeah, David, I cut myself shaving, and I see one drop of blood, and I almost pass out. I can't imagine a river full of blood with that stench, and just that would just be—that'd be it. I'd go, all right, that's enough. Yeah. Just think how hard your heart has to be to, to see that happen. Yes. It's something that's completely out of the, the normal, and just, as it actually says, uh, Pharaoh had—he went his way into his own house with no concern even for this. Mm -hmm. It's like our hearts can be so hard that— we can see something unbelievably, in this case, miraculous happen right in front of us. And you know what? I'm going to go my own way, continue on. And that's exactly what uh, Pharaoh did and what we shouldn't do in our life. Amazing. David, I promised the listeners frogs today. So uh, yes. let's talk about the second plague. Well, again, here's the significance of this this plague, this second plague where frogs are going to be all over the land. <laughs> Fro frogs were no, thank sacred. You. 
Yeah, they were sacred and con they were considered like gods to the Egyptians. In other words, they they would have rep replications of frogs uh, wear on their clothes or on their 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 headdress and so forth and so on. And the reason that is, it goes back to the Nile once again because when the Egyptians would hear frogs croaking in the Nile, it signified the greatness of the Nile and how it brought life and lushness to the land. This was their the way they grew their crops. But now all of a sudden, what they worshipped as a god was being turned into a plague. And so it says, and we flipped over a, a chapter here to Exodus 8 to get into this, this second plague. It says, let my people go again, but if you refuse to let them go, I'm going to bring a smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will, and listen to this, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people, into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. I mean, this is just gross. And so something that had been again, considered sacred by the Egyptians, God was turning into, he was destroying another one of their gods, and, and again, forcing Pharaoh to have to confront the true God, putting a, a vice on him to, to, to soften his heart, to, to break him. But of course, again, we're only in the second plague, Bill, and, and Pharaoh is a long way from being broken. But he does entreat uh, Moses and Aaron and say, hey, please ask the Lord that the frogs may be removed. And Moses says to him, well, when do you want them removed? And Pharaoh, interestingly, says, tomorrow. He doesn't say today, well, get rid of them right now. He says tomorrow, as if he's kind of holding out hope that somehow, you know, this is just an optical illusion or maybe it's just an act of nature and so forth. Well, God did, in fact, release them or, or stop the plague the next day. And Pharaoh went right back to, once again, hardening his heart. I don't know how anybody sleeps, uh, but there's frogs in their bedroom. No, don't like frogs in the bed. <laughs> no, that is uh, not going to work for me as well. So uh, we're running almost out of time, David, but I also just want to give a tease as to what plague is coming up next. I believe it's gnats. Do I have that right? Yeah, there's, there's two more in this chapter, which we'll cover next time, biting gnats and swarms <laughs> of flies. And uh, I think as any good Minnesotan knows, we do not like biting insects up no. here, known for our state bird, the mosquito. So we, we can probably relate very well to these next couple these next couple plagues, especially the swarms of flies. If you've ever been in northern Minnesota in the woods in the middle oh of summer, oh my, you know what those little black flies can be like. Yeah, they drive you nuts. And I can't imagine what this plague must have been like. I have, you know, no concept of it. But we read about it and we try to picture ourselves. I mean, you're up north and there's a swarm of flies and you go, this is miserable. But nothing about what they endured, for sure. Yeah, this was truly of biblical proportions, these plagues. And uh, again, all to show God's power. This, this epic exodus shows an awesome God. He has power over his creation, power over the created order with animals and these these plagues that are taking place, and he's going to break down Pharaoh, and finally in the end, he's going to fulfill his promise to bring his people back to the promised land, and he's going to be destroying Pharaoh and his pride in the meantime. Yeah. Can't wait to continue the study, David. Thank you so much. Same here, Bill. Thank yep. you. Yep. David Wheaton's been my guest, of course. Go to thechristianworldview.org learn more about David, but we will be continuing our study on Exodus until we get through the entire book. I've got David Mathis in the green room, and it looks like he's drinking his complimentary uh, free water. And this is the first time he's been on the show. I think he's excited to come on. I'm excited to meet him. He's the executive editor or director at DesiringGod.org. We're going to talk today about spiritual disciplines. So the question is, how, how are your spiritual disciplines? Are you doing good? Because maybe today will be a good time to check up to see uh, what David's got to say, and maybe we can 
get encouraged to improve our spiritual disciplines. That's all coming up next in just a minute. person. David Mathis is uh, with us for the first time. He's executive editor at DesiringGod.org. Awfully glad. I've been a fan of his for a while. He writes beautifully, and you can find all of his writing at DesiringGod.org. Today we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines and the means of grace that Jesus lived by. How about that for a tease? David, welcome. (laughs) Bill, thank you very much for having me here. It's a joy to be here. Well, everyone that comes over from Desiring God is uh, so thoughtful and prepared and they do such a great job that I was and I've, I've admired your writing for quite a while oh thank you yeah so say something nice about me now <laughs> well I, I, I said this to you when we, we shook hands a minute ago I loved triple espresso 15 years ago I when I first that. moved to town I, know, I was just I was just being <laughs> playful all right let's talk about uh you I want to learn more about you because I want people to know who you are. Well, maybe one of the first things in Minnesota is people hear the old remnants of South Carolina in my voice. I was born and raised in South Carolina and moved here in 2003 with a ministry called Campus Outreach through Bethlehem Baptist. And uh, we went to the University of Minnesota in 03, started doing some evangelism and discipleship. And uh, also while being up here, I did some seminary studies at the church. Back then it was called the Bethlehem Institute. Now it's grown up to be called Bethlehem College and Seminary. Right. And I married a girl from Minnesota, Megan, and we have put down roots here. Have Fantastic. four kids. Wow. Work full time at Desiring God. I'm a pastor at Cities Church with eight other pastors. Jonathan and Parnell being one of them. Jonathan Parnell, that's who's right. Who's been a regular guest on the show. That's right. And if you're listening, Jonathan, I hope you come back soon. That's right. We we need to have, you know, he is down in North Carolina on vacation. Oh. He has a 12 week sabbatical this Good summer. For him. This is, uh, we're going on seven years as a church. We've been been in church now six and a half years since January 2015. And so the summer of 2021 was the Parnell's 12-week Wow, fantastic. <laughs> well, you open this article with a quote from Blaise Pascal, which I find fascinating. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Mm, yeah. Yikes. Well, and what's so amazing about that is it, that, that would be a surprising enough comment to make today. Blaise Pascal wrote that 400 years ago. <laughs> so if, if we think that our, our modern, you know, distractions and our inabilities to sit quietly and sit there in line and not scroll and have human patience, if we think that's a problem for us, we should realize that that's a long time human problem. That humans have had this problem since the fall, <laughs> where we are very easily distracted from what matters most. And there are times when we do need to sit still or be still and know that he is God. And we find that very difficult to do in our sin and impatience. I don't think people like being alone with their thoughts. That's why they pipe music into elevators. Oh, is that right? So you don't have to be alone with your thoughts. There is always noise. And for somebody who lives in the city like me, it's very difficult to find a space where there 
it is genuinely quiet. Right. So I want to talk about your article, which is up at desiringgod.org. Um, it's called Time Alone for God. And I want to talk about the means of grace that Jesus lived by. That's a fascinating idea. I mean, the, uh, you know, we, we talk often about with this term spiritual disciplines. Yeah. And uh, I have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of the term. I'm um, not either. Thank uh, you for saying that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let me explain why and see, see if you resonate okay. with that. Uh, sometimes spiritual disciplines, it can give the impression that this is, this is really on you. Uh, this is what you need to do, discipline you need to cultivate, you need to cultivate the spiritual discipline. You, uh, you can understand it in different ways, but I love the old Puritan term, means of grace. Because what means of grace accentuates is that our God is the God of grace. He is moving toward us, initiating toward us. He is speaking in his word. He's opening his ear in prayer. He's making a context, a fellowship, a community in which we can thrive spiritually. And so uh, God has revealed to us in his word what the avenues, the ongoing avenues of his grace are for the Christian life. And he means for us to now access those means. So it's like, uh, like Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming and he wanted to experience grace, he didn't go in the wilderness and walk around like, oh, maybe Jesus will just show up in the wilderness. <laughs> no, he heard there was a path. Jesus was coming down that road, and so he positioned himself along the path of that coming grace. And this is the amazing amazing gift that God has given us as Christians. Do you want to live in grace? Do you want to live in a sphere of God's ongoing grace? He has told us that he gives up his, his ongoing grace through his word and through prayer and through the corporate life in the body of Christ called the church. And so we can cultivate various habits in our life so that we can access God's ongoing grace in the Christian life. David Mathis is my guest. David, would you also agree that didn't Bartimaeus kind of do the same thing? Put himself <laughs> exactly. up That's on right. the road when Jesus passed by, he'd be in, in proximity. Exactly. And, and the Gospel of Luke puts those two stories together. Mm. And uh, it's good for us to, to take that lesson. You're right, from Bartimaeus as well as Zacchaeus. I love that. So let's talk about what spiritual disciplines, wh- what do you m- think of them? When you think of spiritual disciplines, uh, I think some people might think, well, let's see. Studying God's Word, fasting, meditating, you know, what are spiritual disciplines? So I moved here in 2003 with a college ministry, Campus Outreach. You mean from South Carolina? That's right. All right. And uh, one of the and things... And Megan that, had four kids, and now you love Minnesota, and your roots are here. Piece of cake. All, yeah. And I'm a Twins fan now. So. <laughs> we're, we're clicking even more than you think, David, That's right. just so you know. Joy and sorrow this what summer. What would they think in trading Braille, though? Oh, that was yeah. a bummer. It's, it's, it's sad when we lose a guy that has been ours through the minor Thank leagues. Thank you. Thank you. Know? you. All right, let's yeah. move on. So uh, actually being here at this studio right by Northwestern brings to mind my days in college ministry. And a big thing that we would do with college students is, is teach them how to study the Bible for themselves and to teach them the basics of prayer, corporate prayer together in a group, individual prayer. We'd talk to them about that discipline of being involved in the mm-hmm. local church, the importance of covenant fellowship in the Christian life. And so one of the things early on, I was doing and doing and working college ministry was teaching the means of grace, you know, the spiritual disciplines. Okay, and uh, and then at Bethlehem College and Seminary a few years ago, as an adjunct professor, I got the assignment to work with some college juniors and needed to talk on the spiritual disciplines. And so uh, we used this book that had been so helpful to me when I was in college by Don Whitney called "Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life." And it's a fantastic book. And as we used that, and as I taught the disciplines to the college students. 
Uh, one thing that was I found difficult personally over the years and seemed to resonate with the students is, what are the disciplines? How long's the list? You know, you can make a list of eight or 12 or 15 or 20, and the thought of having all of those 15 to 20 disciplines operative on a daily or weekly basis in any season of life felt like a burden. <laughs> and so the, the question I started pressing on and asking are, behind these particular disciplines you might state in a long list, are there particular principles in God's Word that uh, He wants to be operative in our life that might simplify that concept just to, to relieve the burden and the complexity and help me know how I need to walk in the Christian life? And over time, my, my summary has been threefold, and I, I think it's helpful. And in, in five years of publishing on this and putting it out there, I haven't gotten any you know, disastrous feedback on that. Um, one is hearing God's voice in His Word. That's the first and foremost of the spiritual discipline. God means for us to live in light of what He has said, what He's revealed about Himself in His Word. So hearing God's voice in the Scriptures is the first. The second one is having His ear in prayer. And it's an amazing thing that the God of the universe not only speaks, that's grace enough, but that He wants to hear from us, that He stoops as it was, as it were, and he listens to us. He wants to hear us Amazing. speak. And then the third is he puts us in the context of a body, of fellowship. There's a corporate context in the Old Covenant, and in the New Covenant, there's a corporate context. And so I like to summarize it as, summarize it as hearing God's voice in his word, having his ear in prayer, and belonging to his body in the fellowship of the local church. Say that one more time. Hearing God's voice in his word having his ear in mm-hmm, prayer, mm-hmm. and belonging to his body in the fellowship of the local church. Boy, that is the trifecta, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. That's a beautiful thing. And so many of those disciplines that we've thought of over the years as distinct uh, kind of corral to those loci. So, for instance, having God's Word be functional, operative in our lives. Like We can talk about reading, you can talk about studying the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word. So sometimes you might think of those as distinct disciplines, Whereas I'm, I'm trying to get at that principle there to think, all right, how is God's word speaking into your life? Are you hearing his voice in the scriptures on a regular basis? And in various seasons of life, well, little kids who are small or uh, if you're uh, on, a, on a trip, there may be different times and seasons of life where different specific disciplines or habits, habits would be operative. But there's never a time in the Christian life to go without his word and without prayer and without fellowship. Right. Reminds me of an old Abraham Lincoln quote, does not matter how many times you go through the Bible, but how much of the Bible goes through you. Mm, that's good. I mean, old Abe. Yeah. Old Abe, you know. That's right. But seriously, when you talk about the reading, but how much of this is coming in and really you're living it out. Right. One thing in writing about the spiritual disciplines, it's been about five years ago now. Okay. It was 2016 when I did this book called Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines. One thing that I did not do there that I wanted to do recently and did in this article is kind of pull all together in one place. How did Jesus live related to yeah. these so-called spiritual disciplines <clears throat> or the means of grace? Because here's the amazing thing. Jesus was among us as fully one of us, right? fully God and fully man. 
Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit. Jesus lived by the Word. Jesus prayed. I mean, it's amazing how full the Gospels are of Jesus praying and teaching his men to pray. Jesus got tired. He, got, he did indeed. He, did, he got tired. That's right. He, he showed emotion. Mm-hmm. Jesus was fully human, is right. fully human now, yes. glorified humanity at God's right hand. So the question was, uh, what might we learn about our means of grace, the means of grace in our life, accessing them, by looking at Jesus' life. And admittedly, the Gospels are not mainly given to us to show us spiritual disciplines. The Gospels are mainly to, mainly given to us to show us the God-man and what he's accomplished for sinners and who he is, put the glory of Christ on display. But one of those glories is how he lived his human life, the, the quote-unquote spirituality of the God-man's human life. And uh, when we come to it in those ways, there's some surprising lessons and surprisingly transferable things about Jesus' life as it relates to ours. Mm-hmm. In the article that uh, David Mathis wrote at DesiringGod.org, it's called Time Alone for God, and this caught my eye. He said, for 2,000 years, the teachings of Jesus have called his people into rhythms of retreating from the world and entering into it. David, I want to take a break, but when I come back, I want you to comment on that, because I think a healthy Christian life is, like you say, is not completely solitary or not completely communal. That's right. And I think that's an important uh, point. We'll be right back with lots more. This is my first-time guest, and during the break, I already invited him back to come and be in the studio once again. He has written an article uh, at DesiringGod.org called Time Alone for God, the Ageless Habits of Jesus Christ. And right before the break, um, I quoted someone famous, Abraham Lincoln. Now, it's your turn to quote someone famous. Uh, There we go. Who would you like? So you had uh, Lincoln from the 19th century. I'll go back to the 18th century with, uh, with Jonathan Edwards. So uh, for, for those who maybe haven't heard much of Jonathan Edwards, maybe you've heard of the musical Hamilton, and the uh, the bad guy is is Aaron Burr. Well, Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, so so not too far removed from that founding father's generation uh, in the United States was Jonathan Edwards, who's famous for his sinners in the hands of an angry God, but that was by no means the, the sum of his, his ministry. Ed, Edwards is one of the most brilliant Americans that has ever lived. And he has a quote that was very inspiring for me about uh, this pattern that you see in the life of Jesus of retreat and then reentry into life. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very uh, – we can have this impulse sometimes to want to just retreat and get away or be totally engaged and distracted and not have this kind of rhythm that we see over and over again in the life, in the life of Christ. So here is – here's Edward's quote which it kind of hits us all. That's what I love about this quote, that it stings. Those of who would call themselves extroverts or introverts are both chastened by what Edward says here. He says, uh, a true Christian doubtless delights in religious fellowship and community and Christian conversation and finds much to affect his heart in it. That's a good thing. 
but he also delights at times to retire from all mankind to converse with God in solitary places. And this also has its peculiar advantages for fixing his heart and engaging his affections. True religion disposes persons to be much alone in solitary places for holy meditation and prayer. That stings for a lot of us. True religion disposes persons to be much alone in solitary places. How many of us in 2021 would say that we are much alone in solitary places for the purpose right. of Bible meditation right. and prayer? And so when Edward says that, he goes on and lists all these examples from left to right across the Bible, and he culminates with Jesus. He says, how often do we read of Jesus retiring into mountains and solitary places for holy converse with his father? And when I read that in Edwards, it it just lights were going on everywhere in terms of, you know, it really is frequent in the Gospels that Jesus is retiring. You know, he's retreating and then he comes back. And so I started trying to trace out some of those. There's a there's a rhythm of life or a pattern that we see in Jesus where he moves uh, away from people at certain instances, and then he moves back in to do ministry. There is uh, one place in particular in the Gospel of Luke where it's really striking, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 6. So in chapter 4, verse 42, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. But he didn't just do that once. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, he would withdraw, this is as, a, as a regular practice, he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. So there's this pattern in his life of withdrawing and then back in. And then Luke chapter 6, he went to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And uh, one place that many of us maybe remember this in a special way is in, the, is in Mark chapter 1. Maybe you remember the story where he's, uh, he's in Peter's hometown. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and people are now starting to gather. And it's even said that the whole city, they're bringing all their sick, and they're outside the door. So this is the most fruitful, wonderful day you can imagine for Peter. Jesus comes to his town, heals his mother-in-law. All these people are coming. They're being healed. They go to sleep that night. It's a late night. They wake up in the morning. Jesus is gone. <laughs> and Peter must have been borderline panicked. Like, mm-hmm. Jesus is gone. Where's Jesus? And he looks around the house, no Jesus. Gets the others, look around. They can't find Jesus. They, they look in the town square. Capernaum's not that big. Look in the town square. There's no Jesus. In a few minutes, they know Jesus is gone. <laughs> like, is he okay? Is this all right? And all these people want him. They want to be healed. They want to hear his teaching. They want to be healed from their diseases. Where is Jesus? And so they probably organize a search party, go out looking for him. They find him, and they say to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Like, why would you leave town? And he had gotten up early, and he came out to pray, to meet with his father. How many of us, I'm speaking to myself, first and foremost, how many of us would have the wherewithal when ministry's fruitful? People want to hear the teaching. People want to be healed. People are lined up. You know, this is this is a big, this is a revival. A revival is going on in Capernaum, and Jesus has the spiritual wherewithal to say, "I need to meet meet with my Father. I'm going to go outside the town where I can have some space, have some solitary area, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna pray." And and in addition to that, Jesus meant to move on as well. 
he wasn't ready to stay in Capernaum and do the big tent, uh, as fruitful as that would have seemed. He was ready to move on to the next town. But in doing so, he retreated to pray. It's a brilliant point, David. I love that. And you remind us in your article that Jesus did not have his own personal material copy of the Bible. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's not retreating with an iPad or, or the Bible in a journal. He's going to talk to the Father. That's right. Well, I mean, that's one of the real shockers here is you think, all right, let's learn our spiritual disciplines, our means of grace from Jesus. So, you know, how often did Jesus, did Jesus read the Bible? Did he do a Bible reading plan? <laughs> Pause and realize, Jesus had no material copy of the Bible. Jesus didn't have his own Bible. <laughs> what, what in the world? You know, we're so used to the, to modern life. And, yeah. and, and in church history, we've Christians have had their own copies of the Bible for no more than a quarter of church history. Now, that does not mean that Jesus lived by whims. Uh, Jesus lived very clearly by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father, as he said in the wilderness temptation when he was speaking uh, directly to Satan. So Jesus' life again and again is shaped. It's led. It's directed. It references consciously what is written. So he didn't have his own material copy, but I'm sure his mother sang God's word. Mm -hmm. And he heard God's word read in the synagogue, and they would discuss God's Word. They were probably better memorizers than we were because they had to do this without having their own paper copies of God's Word. So just because Jesus didn't have a Bible doesn't mean that his life wasn't led on a daily basis by what was written. Mm -hmm. That's a key line in Jesus' dialogue in the Gospels. What is written? It is written. It was written over and over again. So he lived his life by what was written. And that's a very clear transferable principle to us. And what a gift that we have the printing press, that we have material and digital copies of God's Word, that we can live our lives like Jesus did by what is written and have the kind of immediate access we do to God's written words. David Mathis is my guest, and right now he's getting a very high rating on my guestometer scale. <laughs> i got to be honest. Um, now, Jesus not only retreated, but he invited his disciples to do the same. Make sure you get away to a desolate place and rest a while. I don't know how we do that today, David. Oof. What is desolate? Well, so that, that language in the Gospels of desolate place, sometimes we talk, we use the, it's translated as wilderness. Yeah, and that could have been 20 feet from your house, from where you sleep. <laughs> that's right. Right? Yeah, and uh, that's one nice thing about living in Minnesota is uh, there's a lot of good wilderness here. You know, people talk about going up north and, and that kind of thing. I, what, what, just very personally, um, so I, I live in Minneapolis, and uh, it's busy and loud, sometimes more so than others. Right. We do have in-laws that live a couple hours north, so we go up north okay. on occasion and spend time with in-laws. So uh, one thing I try to do... They're not your in-laws or somebody else's in-laws, but they got a cabin, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, my, my in-laws, my wife's parents. And, and, uh, so on a daily basis, I want a little kind of mini retreat. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes Christians talk about this as time in the Word or time sure. alone with God or time alone with Jesus. Uh, one of the best habits that a human and especially a Christian can cultivate is to wake up in the morning and want to hear God's voice first. Yeah. What, what voice 
what you hear first will direct your day, will give direction, will give tone to your day. I want to start my day with God's voice first. So uh, a little personal retreat or time alone with God in the morning is one way to do it. Another, uh, it, it, uh, when we gather in corporate worship, that's different than the rest of life. That's not like a Vikings game right. or a Twins game. Uh, we are coming into God's presence as his gathered people, which is why it's so important that the word, the word preached, the word read, the word spoken feature prominently in our worship, which sometimes that can be a danger with, with videos and too many right. images. You know, that, that could be a danger. Uh, the word is to be prominent. And there could be time for some special retreats. So for me, uh, one annual retreat is deer hunting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, my in-laws do this. This is as deer hunting is as big a deal as Christmas uh, with Megan's family, and so we go up and deer hunt. And to be out in the woods, it, it's a it's a unique experience in terms of my annual rhythms of life. Yeah, David, it's so nice to meet you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Very good to be here with you. Have, I can't wait to have you back. David Mathis has been my guest, and if you want to read this article, that it's right at desiringgod.org. It's called Time Alone for God, The Ageless Habits of Jesus Christ. And I know if you Google or uh, just type his name in the search engine, you will find all the other articles he's written. But uh, really nice to meet you, and I look forward to having you back. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, the Sunburnt series will continue, which is what we do on Wednesdays throughout the summer. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be talking to Dr. Doug Gruthaus, who is a theologian and philosopher. And we're going to talk today about defending the biblical view of Jesus. You're not going to want to miss this, I promise. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.